Father, You are good. And You are not just good in and of Yourself, but You are also good to us. Today, as we consider the fact that You are the royal ruling King with total authority over the heavens and the earth, would we also recognize that You are a King with a shepherd's heart? Father, would we follow King Jesus? And would we do so with the desperation that knows that He alone can forgive sin, and also the confidence that comes from knowing that he has the disposition of a shepherd to do so. Help us to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so in those verses that I read from Ezekiel chapter 34, we find that Israel is in exile in Babylon. They have been cast out of the land, and God is addressing the leaders of Israel and chastising them for being inappropriate leaders for selfishly feeding themselves rather than shepherding the flock. God says that he is against the shepherds in a terrifying way for their self-serving negligence. But then he also emphatically promises that he is a God who will himself come to be the shepherd that those leaders of Israel failed to be, and that he was going to send one who would be a son of David who would shepherd his flock. Now, David, in the time of Ezekiel, has already been dead for a long time. So what Ezekiel is doing is he's pointing forward to this messianic expectation that we've had in the David, the the son of David, who 2 Samuel 7 tells us will sit on an eternal throne and be the appointed king of God. Ezekiel is then pointing to this future time when this arrival of the Davidic shepherd king is going to serve as a sign that God has arrived in compassionate rescue, but also implied in that is His holy judgment of those who have not followed. But then as we jump forward from Ezekiel chapter 34 to Matthew, where we've been working through as a church, we see that Matthew, from the very beginning of his, his gospel, in verse 1, is keen to point out that this Jesus he's introducing is a son of David. So we're picking up on some of that Old Testament expectation that this one who is Jesus is also this son of David. And we know that, as we saw in 2 Samuel 7, that this one is going to be a king who is going to sit on an eternal throne, ruling in eternal authority. We've been tracing through the book of Matthew how Matthew has already highlighted this kingly authority that Jesus has. Remember, as we finished up in chapter 7, the, uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the people respond to Jesus' teaching with amazement because he teaches as one with authority in contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees. Likewise, last week in chapter 8, we saw that Jesus' authority was not just in his teaching, but that his authority extended over the forces of nature as he calmed storms. His authority extended over sickness as he brings about healing, and his authority even extends to the fact that he can, by a word, cast out demons. So Matthew has been highlighting this royal authority of Jesus, but he's also been keen to to call our attention to the fact that the son of David is not just a king, but he's also expected to be a shepherd. In Matthew 2.6, we were reminded of the biblical promise that there's going to be a ruler who will come from Judah who will shepherd my people Israel. So today in chapter 9, as Matthew concludes this nine-chapter-long introduction of Jesus, we're going to continue to see Jesus' authority on display. 
And we're going to see it in even more impressive fashion as this one speaks in a way as to challenge the standard traditions of the rulers of the day, as well as that he's going to actually reach into death itself and bring about life. And he's also going to dare to grant forgiveness of sins. And at the end of this chapter, as Matthew brings this, con- this introduction of Jesus to a close, we're going to see Jesus in all of his royal authority surveying his flock with the compassionate heart of a shepherd. As Ezekiel has prepared us to recognize then, and as Matthew will conclude his introduction, we're going to see that when Jesus arrives in the midst of his people, he does so as the Davidic shepherd king and as the sign that God's rescue program is coming in him and also of judgment of those who would refuse to see him for who he is. The big idea then, if you want a one-sentence summary of what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 9, is this. Because Jesus is the compassionate Davidic shepherd king, we should confidently follow him in faithful and total submission. Now that that last phrase is actually important in all of it. We, We don't just follow him, but we are going to ask that we follow him in faithful submission to his total authority. And the reason that's important is today, we're going to see at least two different groups of people who are, in fact, following Jesus. We're going to see the scribes and the the Pharisees, the scholars and the skeptics who are following Jesus, but they're following him as those who have confidence in their own self-appointed authority and who are criticizing the Jesus whom they're following rather than coming to him in faith. But those who will be called saints that we'll see today are those who are following him in what Trent described last week as the desperate confidence of faith. The desperation that comes from knowing that they have no power to provide for themselves what they need, and yet the confidence to come to Jesus knowing that he, in fact, not only has the power, but the willingness and the compassion to do what they cannot. We are trained when we hear messages about authority, to sort of begin to balk. We, we find ourselves calling to mind all sorts of stories of human leaders who have had authority granted to them that they have used in self-serving ways. And so, as we've been building this case for Jesus as one who has total authority, there may be some of us who begin to, to balk at that. But my plea with us here today is for us to see that where human authority and authority in human hands can oftentimes lead to scars and wounds, the total authority that King Jesus brings with him is brought by one who wields that authority with the compassionate heart of a shepherd king. So for that reason, we can confidently submit ourselves to him and faithfully follow him even when the things he calls of us are uncomfortable, are hard, or even risky. Let's begin working through this chapter together, though, shall we? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, 
Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, in this initial story, we see these two groups of people who are present and following Jesus. But on the one hand, we see the, the paralytic and his friends who are coming to Jesus in the desperation of faith, knowing that there's nothing that these friends can do to bring about healing for this man. There is nothing that they can do to help except to come to the one who they believe can do something and to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They are coming in that mixture of desperation and confidence that Trent described as faith last week. But then on the other hand, we have this group of scribes, the the scholars of Israel's scriptures, who are standing there. I imagine them to be standing there with their arms crossed around the fringes of this group, just observing Jesus and waiting for him to do or say something that would allow them to justifiably dismiss him and remain content in their own authority and leadership. But despite the fact that this man is apparently brought to Jesus for the remedy of his physical condition, and despite the fact that we read in chapter 8 that Jesus has the power to, by a word, bring about this man's restoration, this story actually begins in kind of a startling and surprising way. We've been primed by chapter 8 to see that Jesus is capable and willing to bring about healing, but Jesus turns to this man... And it says, seeing their faith, Jesus says to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Think about what Jeremy preached in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, he reminded us that Jesus said, if a good father knows how to give good gifts to their children when they ask, how much more does your heavenly father know to give good gifts to his children when they ask? Even in those times where maybe we don't know exactly what it is we need to ask for. Like such a good father, Jesus here jumps right to the heart of this man's need, going past the obvious physical condition to begin with and speaking to that essential need that he has at the soul level, the forgiveness of his sins. And here, amidst this incredible display of God's glory, what the prophets have been telling us to expect will happen in the day that God acts to give us new hearts to blot out sins and wipe away transgressions. Seeing this in their midst, we have the crowds marveling, but the Pharisees grumbling, accusing him of blasphemy. Functionally, they're attempting to cling to their own authority to perceive the world and and speak rightly of it, by questioning Jesus' authority. Can he really do this? Nah, he must be a blasphemer. But knowing their thoughts then, Jesus responds. And what he says is that he can prove to have the power and the authority, not only over the body, but also over the soul. So he turns to the man and he says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the guy does. I love the the brevity of description that Matthew has in these places. Jesus says something, and it happens. There's a response, even in this man's dead legs, to the powerful 
and authoritative word of Jesus. Can you imagine being that guy, though? Standing up on legs that just a moment ago didn't work. And can you imagine walking home on those fresh legs, having Jesus' life-giving power spoken into them, and on the way home, reflecting on the event and considering what Jesus just proved himself capable of doing. That the legs that didn't function a moment ago are now testifying to the fact that this man who spoke life into them first spoke life into this man's sin-dead soul. I imagine those fresh legs began to quiver, not because of returning to a state of paralysis, but because of the awe and wonder that comes over a man who says, if he can do this to my legs, then can he not also do what he spoke to my heart? What a beautiful realization that must have been. But friends, the thing is, as we hear Jesus' compassionate, laden words to this man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven, we stand in awe and wonder, but the reality is, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, in his death in our place, bearing away the penalty for our sins, his victorious resurrection from the dead, whereby death no longer clings to us, and he serves as our great high priest, pleading his own blood as a purification for our sins, this same message that this paralyzed man heard is the message of the eternal God to us today. Take heart, my children. Your sins are forgiven. Let us never grow weary of hearing that liberating truth from the lips of our God. And yet, in the midst of this response from the paralyzed man and the crowds who gave wondrous praise to God, the response of the, of the scribes is not awe or fear or rejoicing, but doubt and accusation. These are the scribes, the ones who are the keepers of Israel's scriptures, those very scriptures that spoke of God's purposes to blot out sin to grant new hearts, and to grant forgiveness. And yet here they are refusing to recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of the very things that the God who wrote those scriptures said he was going to do. Now, friends, as we work through this passage, and as we come to the end of chapter 9 of Matthew's introduction, we find ourselves probably here having already reached the conclusion that the scribes, and the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel are the ones that are kind of the bad guys. And if we want to be on board with the good guys, we basically look at what the bad guys do and we do the opposite. Right? So, but before we come to the conclusion that refusing to acknowledge Jesus' kingship and actually acknowledging him as king is the only response that we need here, we have to recognize that Matthew's been asking us throughout these nine chapters to answer two fundamental questions. The first question is, who is this man? In fact, we'll see this in Matthew 16. We'll see this explicitly asked. Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? But the second question is, how are you going to respond to this man? 
Matthew's gospel has been up till this point clear and even repetitive in presenting Jesus as the long-awaited Davidic king who is himself God's answer to the problem of sin, brokenness, and death. We know that the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones who get it wrong and that if we affirm Jesus as king, that we get it right. But this identity question still isn't sufficient for us to be satisfied because Matthew still presents that question, so how are you going to respond to him? It still lingers before us. And the reality is we might find ourselves here today affirming Jesus is the messianic king we've been waiting for. Jesus is the one who can forgive sins. Jesus is God with us. We might identify him properly. But what happens, and this is a heart check question, what happens when identifying Jesus as king raises the bar on what it means to live as one who is a subject in his kingdom? Think about the ways that you respond when you hear some of Jesus' instructions. Think about when Jesus calls us to love our neighbor as ourself, but then what comes to mind is those who are your neighbors but who have hurt you or who are hard to love. What about when Jesus calls us to minister to, care for, and include the least of these, the marginalized, and that's uncomfortable? Or what about when Jesus calls us to follow after him by picking up our cross and dying to ourselves. Just a few weeks ago, we had on this stage a brother and a sister who we prayed for as they chose to follow Jesus and his call back into a ministry field that was going to pose some very grave dangers to them. They were stepping willingly with the gospel in obedience into a place that would bring about danger and the possible loss of life. And yet they were, for us, examples of total submission to following King Jesus and his authority. As you heard them speak, I wonder, did you hear them speaking and think, man, that, those are crazy people. What are they doing? Or, even if your circumstances are different, did you look at them and say, yes, Jesus, whatever you would send me into, whether it's what they are going into or whether it is the field that you are sending me into in my daily life, you have my total submission and I would follow you in that way. As you heard them speak and give voice to their obedience to do what they believe Jesus to be calling, the reality is that even though their circumstances might be different than yours, their resolve in following King Jesus is what is expected. It is what we are all called to be willing to do. Total submission to what this kind king asks of us. We do well then to ponder these questions as we go home and throughout this next week. Do I respond to Jesus' authority with a posture of submission, knowing that he is the good shepherd king who not only has the authority to call me to hard things, but also he has the compassionate disposition to call me to the things that are for my best? that following him is more worthy than trying to protect my life or pursue my preferences or any such thing. Because the reality is, when we balk at living under Jesus' authority in his kingdom, we functionally take the same posture and approach as the Pharisees and the scribes did. 
they may have missed that Jesus is king, but when we say Jesus is the king and has total authority, and then we continue on to say, well, except over that part of my life, we undermine the claim that he is in fact king, that he does in fact have the authority to call us to uncomfortable, difficult things. So it's worth asking then, are there places in our lives where we have resisted Jesus' ability to reign? Are there places that we need to bring to him that question to say, Lord, point out the places in my life that I've reserved for my own prerogative, that I've resisted following you in total dependence. We do need to keep going on here with verse 9, but I think that's a worthy question for us to ponder over the next couple days. Read with me in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I want to pause here just for a minute because I haven't been able to get past this verse in my study and preparation. This is Matthew the tax collector, who is also Matthew who's writing this gospel. And this is his account for us of his testimony. I mean, Matthew has the pen, right? So he has the opportunity to tell us all about his life and who he was and tell his testimony as one who is this wicked, self-serving, thieving tax collector before he met Jesus. But for Matthew, he demonstrates in the brevity of this account the fact that he knows that his testimony has much more to do with the one who called him than it does with his condition when he was called. He focuses simply on saying, Jesus, the king, said, follow me. And so I did. Matthew followed Jesus here without asking whether or not he was a suitable companion. He said, no, the king called me. So what do you do when the king calls you? Follow him. However, as we continue on, we see that the Pharisees, on the other hand, are absolutely fixated on the condition of those who come to Jesus, the reputation that they have, and they are highly concerned to point out that people's despicable pasts and presence should make them unsuited to the presence of Jesus. We continue on in verse 10. It says, And Jesus, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. Where Matthew's concern here is to focus on Jesus and his call to follow him, the Pharisees fixate on the despicableness of those who they perceive to be following Jesus. They judge those sinners to be unsuitable companions to Jesus, and in so doing, they insinuate that such suitable companions actually exist. But the reality of this is, they of all people, these guardians of the Scriptures, should know that those very Scriptures, the Psalms, tell us that there is no one who is good. Or as Paul will later extrapolate in Romans, there is none who is righteous, no, not one. So these Pharisees should be able to identify that they don't belong in this righteous category, but they, along with everyone else, fall into the unrighteous category. The whole point of Jesus' rescue mission here 
is that there are no suitable companions for Jesus if he is in fact God with us, unless he is going to act to radically redeem. But the Pharisees find themselves standing back and judging with their own authority who is worthy of Jesus' fellowship and who isn't. The Pharisees aren't alone in questioning Jesus, though, and as this passage continues in verse 14, we see the disciples of John coming to Jesus and saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. In this section, then, we see Jesus being critiqued by John's disciples, and they are questioned as to why Jesus' followers aren't following the traditional fasts of the Pharisees. Jesus' response, however, is to instruct them about what fasting itself is for. He says it's something that's appropriate when there is a longing for a different situation. We fast in order to indicate that we yearn for something more than what we're giving up, something more than bread, something that finds its satisfaction in God's presence alone. So Jesus tells his disciples then, if God is here, if the bridegroom is present, it's a time to feast, not to fast. But he does go on, and he tells them that there will come a time where fasting will again be the right expression of a longing for his return. And so it's worth thinking as a church about our own practices of fasting here. Christian fasting is something that's more than just disciplining our desires. It's not just setting aside eating for a time so that we can remember to pray. It is that, but it's actually something deeper where we recognize that our desires for material things, if we drill deeper beneath them, we actually find that there is a more ultimate desire that is satisfying only in that day when God will create a new heavens and a new earth. And we will dwell in the immediate and unmediated presence of our triune God. So it is appropriate for us to fast as a way of actually cultivating and directing our desires to that day when Christ will return, when the bridegroom will again be with us. But for now, in Matthew's gospel, and as he responds to John's disciples, he says, no, no, no. These disciples are right to not fast. They are in feast mode. So if we continue on then in verse 18, we see that this miracle worker continues to demonstrate his authority in miraculous ways. He says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. You hear the echoes of what he said to the paralytic? Take heart, my son. Take heart, 
daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had, gone, had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This passage is one of the most fascinating and beautiful ones in this whole chapter for me. We see a miracle that's nested within another miracle. And in the middle of this crowd, we see two people exercising total desperation and radical confidence in the person of Jesus. And at the center of it all, we see Jesus responding to their faith with compassionate power and with restorative authority. First, consider the situation that this man is in. This is a father whose daughter has grown sick and she's died. He is helpless and hopeless. There is nothing that this man can do to change the situation. He is broken and grieving. It would be expected for this man to express his grief in the context of the community that had gathered to mourn with him and his wife, but he doesn't do that. Instead, this man leaves the mourners behind and he goes to find Jesus in desperate confidence that though he could do nothing, Jesus could do anything. In fact, it's actually interesting that Matthew notes for us that this isn't just a father, but this man is a ruler. He's one who has some level of authority, power. But it seems as though this man has encountered the limits of what his authority and power can accomplish for himself. And in response, he's gone to find the one who he believes has so much authority and power that it is so unlimited that not even death stands beyond his ability to reverse. This man comes to Jesus and he says, my daughter's dead, but put your hand on her and she won't be anymore. And Jesus' response is to get up and follow this man. Now, in and of itself, that is a wild affirmation that Jesus can do something about a dead girl. Jesus follows this man, and it's a silent affirmation that he has the authority to do exactly the, same, the sort of crazy thing that this man has asked of him. But on the way then, nested within this miraculous story that will turn a funeral into a celebration of resurrection, we find another person who is marked by desperation. She's approaching Jesus. This woman tells us that she, uh, this woman is one who Matthew tells us believes that only if she touches the fringe of Jesus' garment, she will be made well and saved. Now, last week we saw a leper who Jesus cleansed. And Trent made much of the point that this leper was socially ostracized. He was set out of joint with the community. He was outside of the social circles that would have recognized him as a part of the community. This woman may have some of the same sort of social stigma to her, but her problem, her impurity, is that Leviticus tells us, Leviticus 15 tells us that because of this perpetual bleeding, she is perpetually unclean. 
This woman's problem is more than a mere social stigma. This is a religious separation. She is defiled and reminded of the fact that she is separate from God. She is cut off from His presence and unable to approach God in worship. For 12 years, she has been desperate. But she's also confident. While she draws near to Jesus, she declares and reveals that she sees Jesus for who He really is. She would have known that under the Levitical law, she in her defiled state would cause the defiling and the impurity of anything that she touched. But she saw in Jesus one who was such a source of life that Leviticus's order was reversed. Rather than her contact with him bringing about Jesus' defilement, her contact with one who is so pure would pour over into her condition and make her well. She saw in Jesus one who not only could, but would make her well, restored, made whole, and saved. This woman then came to Jesus in desperation, and she left in restoration. Jesus arrived at a funeral surrounded by mourners, and he left behind a congregation of people celebrating as a resurrection occurred. Jesus, the messianic son of David, has the authority, the power, and the compassion to turn back death, to purify impurity, to restore that which is broken to complete wholeness. By faith, this man received his dead daughter back to life. By faith, this woman was restored and made well. By faith, the paralyzed man walked in the forgiveness of his sins. Watching the crowds marveled and gave glory to God, while the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled. The contrast between the, those who follow Jesus in faith and those who follow him in the prideful estimation of their own self-appointed authority is made painfully clear in the fourth section of this chapter. Read with me in verse 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Here we have a stunning juxtaposition between two blind men who see Jesus for who he really is, the long-awaited son of David. And then the Pharisees, who claim to rightly see and perceive the world as it is, who actually prove themselves to be blind. As the self-appointed leaders in Israel then, these Pharisees prove that they are as worthless as the derelict shepherds that we saw in Ezekiel. In fact, as we're going to see in a couple weeks in Matthew chapter 12, these Pharisees associating what is the work of a merciful God with the hand of the prince of demons 
It's actually a damnable error of eternal consequence. But before that, we see Matthew bring his introduction of Jesus to a close in Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Our God promised in Ezekiel that he would show up to shepherd his flock. He himself would arrive. And in Jesus, the son of David, we have this shepherd king on the scene. Jesus compassionately observes the pitiable condition of the crowds as those who are these scattered, helpless, and harassed sheep. And he is moved with compassion. We see in this moment that the total authority that this Davidic king has is wielded by one with a shepherd's heart. He has compassion for his flock. But his, his arrival is also characterized by hope. Yes, he sees the sheep as harassed and helpless, but he also perceives in them a harvest that is ripe and ready to receive his rule. Jesus tells his disciples then to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest because it's ready. The king is on the scene. The fruit of the land is abundant, and there is hope for harassed and helpless sheep because the shepherd is on the scene. Jesus tells his disciples to pray then that he would send out laborers to bring this harvest in. And we'll see next week actually in chapter 10 that some of Jesus' disciples are the very beginning to the answers to that prayer as Jesus sends them out to proclaim the kingdom. But for now, for us here, we would do well at the end of this time to to follow our shepherd king, to ask him to give us that disposition of the crowds who know our own desperation, who know the limits of what we can do to change our circumstances, and who recognize we are harassed and helpless apart from the one who would give us guidance. But also, we also find ourselves needing to submit to his total authority and coming to him with, the, with an unmitigated yes on the table, saying, Jesus, wherever you would send us, we're ready to go. Whatever you would ask of us, we know that it comes from the heart of a shepherd king. Likewise, we're called to pray that the Lord would send laborers into his harvest, and whatever place we are sent to from here is a place where we trust our God is at work. And the message of his kingdom is going forward and his authority rules over those spaces. So would you join me in praying that the Lord would cultivate this response in our hearts and also that he would send out laborers into the harvest in Cedarville, in Xenia, in Springfield, and the places that he's going to send us into today. In Jesus' name. Father, you are our good shepherd. 
You are the the king with total authority over your creation, and we long to be subjects who would submit ourselves, ready to listen, ready to move, to obey, and knowing all the while that whatever you send us into, you are sending us as one who has a heart that is for us. Thank you, Father, for seeing us as those who are desperately in need of guidance, of shepherding. Thank you for sending Christ to be our good shepherd. Would we submit to him as our good shepherd king this week? Would we turn back pleasing worship to you as you send us into your harvest? Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.